If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 740. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. This is B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Purchase one or 20 classes there. Of course, right now we've got the Black Friday deals. If you're listening to this podcast in November of 2022, just use the coupon code Black Friday 2022, and you can get 30% off every class at McClanahan Academy. doesn't matter if it's the bundles, a single class, the most expensive class, the least expensive class, 30% off. It's a great deal, and you don't want to miss it. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com or clicking on the heart under this video if you're watching on YouTube, or go to anchor.fm. You can subscribe all three places. Uh, financially subscribe, I should say. Support the show financially. Throw a few pennies my way. All those places. You can also click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Uh, give it that five-star review. Leave a text review where you can comment on YouTube if you're watching on YouTube for the algorithm. Watch it all the way through. Put it on double time. Whatever you got to do to get through. That also helps bump the algorithm. So we, I do appreciate all that. And send me those show requests. Right? I, I want to see what you want to hear. And this is actually a listener-generated episode today. It's um, something I think that is going to, it has become much more prevalent and popular in the last decade or so. And this is surprising to me, and I've I've talked about this topic on this podcast before, but how many more people are interested in the idea of decentralization and actual decentralization, which would be secession. Now, we just went through the election cycle. And we've seen that the United States is as divided as ever. We're going to have a Congress with a razor-thin majority for the Republicans. Probably, and I'm predicting, a 51-seat majority in the Senate. So two-seat majority there. Maybe uh, you know, just a handful of seats in the House of Representatives. Joe Biden's not going to back down on the left agenda. He's going to keep trying to legislate with a pen and a phone. And we know that everyone on the left and the right is interested in one-size-fits-all top-down government. This is... The, this is the problem that we have in modern American society, that we want everything from the center. And the whole theme of this show is think locally, act locally. And the United States was designed as a federal republic. And it was designed that way because the founding generation knew, and Americans knew, that if you had decentralization, if you allowed the states to operate in their own domestic concerns or in their own way, you would have a more peaceful and stable union. The center, the central authority, the center of the general government, only had specific powers over commerce and defense. And by commerce, what they were intending to do is keep the United States as a free trade zone. It didn't mean they were going to go out and regulate what kind of tomatoes you planted in your backyard, which is, of course, what the United States government thinks it can do now. 
It didn't mean they could stick a tax on everything you do. Or that if you walked over a state line, you'd committed interstate commerce. That's not what they intended it to be. But that's how the courts have interpreted it. So it's been a, a distortion of original intent in that way. And by original intent, what I get to there, of course, is that we have clear indication from the ratification debates from the Philadelphia Convention, what these people thought about commerce and what they intended to mean by defense. We also know that the founding generation wasn't necessarily interested in offensive wars. In fact, some of the members of the founding generation didn't want a standing army at all. They wanted to have a situation where you have militia and uh, you had a very small professional class of soldiers. I mean, Jefferson was instrumental in creating West Point, the United States Military Academy. So we had a professional class of officers who could then serve with distinction if the United States was ever attacked. But we know the United States wasn't interested in offensive wars. And of course, the rebuttal to that would be, well, what about the Tripoli pirates and Jefferson? Well, he's protecting American commerce at that point. It's not an offensive war. So the United States today is dramatically different than it was 220 years ago. It's not a whole long period of time, in fact. 220 years is not a long period of time. But we've come, we, we've dramatically changed how we think about the powers of the general government, the central authority. Now, what's happened, of course, is that since 1865, really since 1861, we've had a much more volatile and violent situation for the United States. Now, we know for a period of reconciliation, Southerners buried the hatchet, Northerners buried the hatchet, and generally things were stable. And then, of course, during World War II, we had this tremendous surge in American nationalism. And I think that, more than anything else, has done a lot to solidify this notion that the United States is a nation, a national government, one size fits all, the Great Depression followed by World War II. But all of that is com coming crumbling down. And Americans are looking around now and they're trying to figure out, well, do, if you're in California, do I want to be governed by Alabama? And if you're in Florida, do I want to be governed by California? If you're in Connecticut, do I want to be governed by Montana? I mean, this is what Americans are starting to think about. And more than that, we're seeing this in states as well. If you're in Nevada right now, if you're in one of the remote counties, do you want to be governed by Las Vegas? Or if you're in Georgia, do you want to be governed by Atlanta? I mean, this is also another issue. If you're in Illinois, do you want to be governed by Chicago? If you're in New York, do you want to be governed by New York City? So we're now seeing not just states, but also within the states, you have pockets of very strong left-wing politics and pockets of very strong right-wing politics. And so there's a real discussion about decentralization, not just in the center, but also at the state level. In my own state, there's been a lot of talk about giving cities and counties more autonomy and having uh, more flexibility and breaking free from the state government in Montgomery. Uh, so this is a real discussion to have. And when you go back to Hume and you look at his ideas for, or for a republic, the ideal republic, it will be so decentralized that you couldn't have any kind of corrupt money funnel into the center. You would have so much power diffused around that there was no chance for corruption. And what we're seeing with this election in many states is that we have corruption. Now, that doesn't mean that, again, as I've said, you're going to be able to prove a lot of this stuff. But people know what happens. And people are suspicious 
of the corruption at the state and local level, and of course, the federal level. Now, I gave a podcast, which is actually YouTube banned, YouTube banned this podcast. It was way back. I talked about local government and how local government is actually more responsive to corruption than the federal government. And we've seen that. I'll give you a nice example of it just from this election cycle, and that's Florida. Florida cleaned up its elections because it could. And when is the last time you really saw the United States government clean up any corruption? Now, we know that some states are just overrun with corruption, and there's probably no hope. But generally, these states that are overrun with corruption and there's no hope have the lowest... Uh, no, let, me, let me put it this way. They have the largest, I should say, uh, representative ratio in the United States. And one of those, of course, is, is uh, California. Your representative ratio in California is hundreds of thousands to one. The state legislature doesn't really represent anything but special interest money. And in the cities, you've got real corruption, again, because these cities are so large and you have very small numbers of representatives. And so it's easy to get to them with money. Even your police forces and other things are overrun with corruption. So the more that you centralize power, the more corrupt you're going to have, you're going to be. And of course, you can't clean it up. And so the best thing to have, of course, is more diffused power, lower representative ratios, as low as you can get. We know that Washington uh, thought 30,000 to 1 would be good for representative government. And again, we don't have that at all in the U.S. government. We don't have it in many states. Some states are lower. Many states are higher. I've given a podcast on that too. In my own state, it's about 30,000 to 1 which is considered decent representative ratio for a general government, not for your local concerns. This is why local government matters. And that's part of the Anglo-American tradition. You go back to uh, even the 11th century. And as the uh, English started developing this idea of local self-government, this is something that was important. The county sheriff was important because the county sheriff could... could uh, use the political culture of the region against the center. And we saw it in Virginia. Virginia could, in the colonial period, for example, would ignore edicts from the center, from Richmond. They would do it all the time, the sheriffs and the county officials. So this idea of decentralization is catching on, not just for the right, but also for the left, at least where they can do it. Now, we know the left is addicted to the center, and they want the power. And I would say that the right is the same thing. The right is also addicted to the center, and they want the power as well. But this is where, I, again, I caution people looking at national elections and getting so worked up over them. It's not really that important in the long run, in the, in the, in the larger scheme of things. What really matters is your state and local election. And I was shocked. I, was, I was, had Glenn Beck on for about 10 minutes the other morning. And he and Stu, which I've been on, on Stu's program before, were talking about how important it was to have state and local government. And how, of course, they live in Texas and how really nothing changed for them during the pandemic overall. And I would say the same thing in Alabama. Not much changed overall in the state of Alabama, where I live, when it comes to the way people lived and conducted their business during 2020 and 2021. Uh, nothing, I mean, we didn't have all of the authoritarian things happening in the state of Alabama that people had in New York, for example. And I know some people are really miserable 
California. I mean, these states that were just centers of leftism, people were miserable. And we don't want, nobody wants to be governed by that. So after this election comes in and we've got these razor-thin majorities, which I think we're going to continue to have, I don't see in the future any way around this. I think that the United States is going to continue to be a 50-50 split. Now, I will say this. Demographics are certainly showing themselves in this last election cycle. Uh, unmarried women tended to, and this is the way it's been going, break Democrat. We know that minority groups break Democrat. And you have larger and larger groups of these people. Marriage is going downhill. The number of married people, I think, is actually now less than 50%. And married women with children tend to vote more conservative. If you look at age groups, we know 44 and up. And then married women with children tended to vote Republican or conservative or whatever you want to say. And then all the other groups tended to vote on the left. And we saw that the Generation Z group, which is why education is so important, are tending to break Democrat. Now, this is almost always the case. We have young people that are don't know anything, and they just want to be hip, and they think it's cool. But I think education and what they're getting in the schools really does matter now. And it's always mattered, but I think it with the culture war and what they're being indoctrinated with in the schools, both at the K-12 through level and at the university level, this is going to be a real problem in the future because it takes a lot of work to undo this stuff that's put in their heads. To that they're they're create they're given a distorted reality of what America and what the world really is. What I mean, they, they don't even they don't even call a spade a spade anymore. It's it's completely ridiculous. So it takes a lot of work to get that to correct that, which is why I do this podcast and hopefully you share it with some people that that are confused about things in America. But I think that's only going to get worse. And so, again, people are starting to look around and say, what options do we have? Well, federalism really is the key. I know that decentralization, secession, people talk about that and breaking up the United States. And, of course, any form of decentralization I'm on board with, I don't think that secession is going to happen anytime in the near future unless we have a major economic catastrophe, we have hyperinflation or something like that happens. And that's a possibility, of course. Anytime we have a government printing money excessively, it's always a possibility. You never know what these people are going to do to create economic problems. If we have a major war and dislocation, there could be something like that. We know the warmongers are always on the hunt for a new war to go out and get the United States involved in. But I think Americans overall are too decadent to even think about leaving and having state secession. So this is why I always say, you know, think locally, act locally, and work on those state and local governments and try to ensure that your local government reflects your interests and your values. That your state government, at least the best you can, reflects your interests and your values. And that you try to live in that way and not really worry about what happens in another state. Um, I, look, I'm as interested as anybody else in, in sticking it to the left. And we love to see lefties cry and throw fits because it's funny. And of course, you know, the, uh, the Colorado 3 election, District 3 with Lauren Boebert, has been fascinating to watch. The left is going to melt down because she's going to win that election. Uh, I said yesterday I wasn't so sure. Today I'm pretty sure she's going to win that election. I predicted by 60 votes on uh, Twitter um, last week. I, um, but, I mean, she she won. Uh, so, I look, I think that 
uh, it's clear that you know we'd like to see these things. But then again, have you paid attention to your governor's race? I know that we pay attention to other governors. Are you paying attention to your own governor's race? Are you paying attention to your own city council? What's going on there? Are you paying attention to your own state constitutional amendments? Are you doing everything you can to ensure that your state, again, reflects your values? And that doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right. I, you know, that it, if your political culture and your state is of the is of if, is of the left, well then, and that's where you are too. Then that political culture of that state should reflect that. You can live in your own socialist utopia or nightmare, as I would describe it. But certainly, uh, that's your prerogative. But we should all be looking at more and more power and decentralization. And even in California, California should be pushing for a larger legislature there. They should push for more representation for the fringe areas. Now, we know the left isn't going to want to do this because that limits their power. But certainly something that people should be looking at. And you should be trying to sell it to people in California on the left. You you could actually have more representation, too. But of course, you would have to give it to more conservative areas as well. But I mean, people are voting with their feet. They're moving to Texas. They're moving to Florida. And so you're also going to see that phenomenon. Florida is going to be a pretty red state from here on out, I think. Texas, even though there's all this talk about Texas going purple, it's not. Uh, Georgia, I think, is still a red state. But we have seen bad candidates in Georgia over the last couple of senatorial election cycles. Loeffner and Purdue and Walker. They're just not good candidates. And so Georgia's got to figure that out. We know that um, you know when when Georgia actually has decent candidates and and they do the right thing, they win in pretty crushing majorities. And we know that what we need to be looking at for states, of course, is reforming your election law so it's more like Florida and less like Nevada and Arizona. But there was a piece that someone sent me about secession and uh, about Texas secession, and the point was that Texas secession is unconstitutional. Uh, and the major argument of it was, of course, the war settled this. So let me read this piece. And I want to do this today because, again, I'll, I'll mention where this is all just stupid. But this was actually published on November 8th, 2022. And the title is, Texas Cannot Secede from the U.S. Despite Popular Myth. So this is from uh, KSAT.com. And it's written by Mary Claire Patton. Now, Mary Claire Patton, I don't know who she is some journalist somewhere uh, in Texas. I mean, why would people even consider Mary Claire Patton an authority on this? I have no idea, but this is her piece. She says, it's a common adage in Texas, they're only the only state that can secede from the U.S. But is it true? In short, no. Shocker, right? Every Texan born and raised in our great state has heard the old saying about Texas being the only state that can, that can secede. However, so-called Texit, or Texas exit from the Union, is a common myth mired in legal issues that would make secession controversial, if not outright illegal. Now, here is the thing. Her argument legally is funny. And I'm going to get into that. And then, of course, where she says that one of the other things, one of the other blocks, and I'll, I'll talk about Texas v. White, but This is something that the left or the right, I mean, you've got people on the right that would say secession is illegal too. You've got Alan Gelzo, who I talked about earlier this week, running around. He would say secession is illegal. You just got to live with it. You got to live with the dopes on the left if they continue to ruin everything. You just got to live with it. There's, there's There's no exit. It can't happen. And I would say that, you know, federalism is the answer for right now. We need to just worry about your own backyard. 
and try to take care of that and show the center they have no clothes, that they don't really matter. And you would see more and more people just start to ignore what happens in Washington, D.C. And at that point, then you can really start to think about more, more stronger forms of decentralization. Eric McDaniel, Associate Professor of Government at the University of Texas at Austin, told the Texas Tribune in 2016 that, quote, the legality of seceding is problematic. The Civil War played a very big role in establishing the power of the federal government and cementing that the federal government has the final say in these issues. It did. The Civil War was a war that uh, didn't solve any legal issue. It just said that, you know, if you try to leave, we're going to kill you. But that didn't solve the legal issue. Wars don't solve legal issues. But, of course, this is the common argument. We fought a war over that. We didn't fight it. I mean, uh, the war, yes, the Union won the war. But that didn't mean that the legal issue was resolved. The Supreme Court case from 1868, Texas v. White, also backs this up. As the justices maintained that when Texas became one of the United States, she entered into, into an indissoluble relation. Well, that will be news to Texas and every other state that entered the Union and particularly the original states, that three states had resumption clauses. If the general government was abusive, then they could resume their independent status. That would mean secession. But this is not really what Texas v. White said. Uh, now, let me, let me say this. She, she says, The court's decision meant that no individual states are now allowed to secede from the Union. Quote, the union between Texas and the other states was as complete, as perpetual, and as indissoluble as the union between the original states. There was no place for reconsideration or revocation except through revolution or through the consent of the states, according to the decision handed down by the justices. Now, this is how stupid Patton is, and of course other people. What the Texas v. White decision said was that you can leave. You can leave the union through revolution or through the consent of the states, meaning the states could boot you out. So there is a pathway for secession. Didn't say secession was illegal. It says there's a pathway for it. But I would still maintain that even though the court said this, and the court would have to say this in 1868, because if they didn't, and Salmon P. Chase, who was the chief justice, if he didn't say this, well, then what you have done is just invalidated four years of war. You have just, if you said states could legally secede from the union, then you have just said that the entire war was illegal because there was never a declared war. And that Lincoln's position that these states were in rebellion was legally false. So the court is not going to do that. They're not going to change course and, and un undermine the legal arguments that Lincoln had made throughout the entire war. They won't do it. You're relying on the victors to decide what was legal and wasn't. It's ridiculous to think that they would have done anything otherwise. This is why this case is ridiculous. But even then, again, it does say the states can leave or through the right of revolution, which is what Lincoln said, of course, during the war with Mexico. Well, there is the right of revolution. Any people have that right anywhere. But if you lose, well, then you can't leave. And of course, again, we know from the history of the United States that the founding generation thought secession was perfectly legal. They talked about it all the time leaving the Union, and nobody called it a right of revolution. They just, because they understood the states had the power to do this. The Tenth Amendment makes that clear. It's not a power denied by the Constitution. It's retained by the states. Late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia responded to a screenwriter who posed the same question in 2006. Can a state secede? Now, 
the people like to throw out Scalia because he's conservative, right? So conservatives are going to be pro-secession. So Scalia said, to begin with, the answer is clear. If there was any constitutional issue resolved by the Civil War, it is that there is no right to secede. Hence, in the Pledge of Allegiance, one nation indivisible, Scalia said. This is, this is hilarious. Scalia cites the Pledge of Allegiance as evidence that states are not allowed to secede. The Pledge of Allegiance was written by a socialist utopian named Edward Bellamy. And the idea was to teach young minds of mush that we do have one-size-fits-all, top-down central control because, of course, that means that we have a situation where no one can ever break out of this union. And if we have progressive government, you can't get out of it. The Constitution doesn't make any provision for secession. It doesn't have to. That's also a stupid argument. It doesn't have to make a, a provision for secession. The Tenth Amendment makes that clear. If it's not denied by to the states, which there isn't any provision against secession, and the power is not granted to the center, well, then all rights are reserved to the states. It's a very clear argument. I mean, th th again, it's an originalist argument, which most people don't understand because they don't get it. But secession is perfectly legal under the Tenth Amendment and under a right of self-determination. The states can do this. Despite the legal issues, Texas Republicans have tried to get the legislature to allow Texas to vote on whether the state should secede from the United States. Well, I would say this is the incorrect way to do it, not the legislature. You should have a convention of people of the state of Texas, and they should decide if they want to leave the Union. This is how it was done in 1860 and 61. You had conventions of the people, not the legislature. So you don't want the legislature doing this. You want conventions. We should have more conventions in America. Because conventions are a purely American thing, and it really is the voice of the people. That's how the Constitution was ratified in convention. You can actually amend the Constitution through convention. Conventions can say the Constitution doesn't exist. Conventions are important. In early 2021, State Representative Kyle Biederman, Republican Fredericksburg, filed a bill that would give Texans the option to secede and develop a plan for achieving Texas independence. The bill did not pass. In June, a Platform Resolutions Committee report from the GOP convention stated in part, quote, Pursuant to Article 1, Section 1 of the Texas Constitution, the federal government has impaired our right of local self-government. Therefore, federally mandated legislation that interferes upon the Tenth Amendment rights of Texas should be ignored, opposed, refused, and nullified. Texas retains the right to secede from the United States and the right, I'm sorry, and the Texas legislature should be called upon to pass a referendum consistent thereto. So without consent from the United States or by means of revolution, Texas can't secede from the Union. That's a weird conclusion. So you have this, and I think that the GOP convention platform, if it had added that, would have been beautiful because this is entirely consistent with how the founding generation thought about the powers of the central government. So at least Patton does say Texas uh, can secede if the other states say they can. This is the issue of you know, unilateral secession, but I still believe the states can unilaterally secede through the will of the people. The people of the states can do as they wish. They can join the union or not. They can leave the union if they want. But first and foremost, we should be thinking about decentralization, which is what this platform actually does. Anything that violates the Constitution should not be enforced in the state of Texas or any other state. The problem is we don't have any teeth in the Tenth Amendment, and there was no specific... Uh, language 
in the Tenth Amendment on how to enforce it, but it was said over and over again the ratifying debates and that the states would be powerful enough to check unconstitutional federal legislation. Powerful enough to check it. That language is actually used by members of New England in the ratification period. The states would be powerful enough to check unconstitutional legislation. The question is, how do they do it? Well, you got to do it through state action. you got to do it through the legislature or conventions of the people. We know South Carolina did this a number of times. Even the uh, the convention that nullified the tariff, it was done through convention. They called, The legislature called a convention, the people met, and they voted on nullifying the tariff of abominations, and then the 1832 tariff as well, and then, of course, they nullified the force bill. That's the forgotten little part, that nullification of the force bill is often dropped. But after they rescinded the nullification of the tariff, they nullified the force bill, and then adjourned. So they still nullified. It has to be done in conventions. If you're listening to this and you're a proponent of this kind of decentralization, it has to be done in conventions. We should have conventions to deal with all kinds of issues. It is the voice of the people, the people of the states, which are the building blocks of the entire union. First and foremost, I think everyone out there who is interested in thinking locally and acting locally should be engaged in your school board meetings, engaged in your town council, engaged in your state legislatures, engaged in your GOP or Democratic Party platform positions uh, at the state and local level. I, I'm, and again, I've given examples on this show where people have gone out and done this and they've had a greater impact than they would worrying about whether Raphael Warnock or Herschel Walker is going to be your U.S. Senator. These people don't care. They don't care at all. On the Abbeville podcast last week, I talked about the Arlington Confederate Monument and how chances are, even though people are going to try to contact their representatives, to try to get them to stop that barbaric destruction of that monument, they're not going to do it because they really don't care. Unless you're coming in with a big check or you can withhold money from them, they really don't care what you think about these issues. So, my position on this podcast, and of course Tom Woods has been, you know, secession is perfectly legal. Tom Woods has a new book out, new free audio book about decentralization. And again, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised about how this has caught on in the United States. Uh, that people are actually talking about these things, and even the threat of it. You know, you have uh, Richard Kreitner, a leftist, saying, well, maybe it's something that we should think about. Perhaps not. I mean, he's not necessarily in favor of it, but at least he's open to discussing this, which would have been unthinkable about 30 years ago. In 30 years, a lot has changed. And I don't think, and this is the question, we're heading for a civil war. Americans aren't going to do that. There's no way. And secession, this is, this is the thing, secession doesn't have to lead to war. It can be a completely peaceful movement. And that's the thing that, again, people miss oftentimes, is that secession is actually a peaceful action to say, we have irreconcilable differences, let's just live apart, and we'll settle our differences that way, rather than saying, you know what, I'm going to coerce you to come to my position. Federalism, though, does the exact same thing. This is where we need more and more people thinking locally and acting locally to try to ensure that Federalist message is maintained. Federalism is a peaceful response to the barbaric position of nationalism and one-size-fits-all government. It just doesn't work. And I would rather have my own state reflect my political culture than forcing everyone else in the United States to do the exact to do what I want them to do. I don't care. Uh, as Clyde Wilson said, you know, Southerners can take, can go a whole lifetime not worrying about what happens in Oregon. 
I really don't care what happens in Oregon. I don't care what happens in New York. And I mentioned, you know, I've mentioned this before in Buckley and Wallace. And when Wallace said, I really don't care what happens in New York and Buckley, oh, oh, he almost you know, had a heart attack over that. Why would Wallace care what happens in New York City? He doesn't live there. Now, as president, he'd have to care. But not on local issues like education. That should be handled in New York. And you can have all the dopey stuff you want there. Now, of course, the people of New York, if you're outside of New York City, you should be trying to work and make sure that your school boards reflect your values and your interests. In all of these blue states, whether it's New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, there are people in those, in those states that aren't on board with the stupidity that comes out of the left, the progressive left, or California, or Oregon, or Washington. You should be doing these things to ensure that your values rep- are represented at your local level where you have sanity and normalcy. But you got to do it at the local level and not keep saying, uh, you know, you have this new commitment to America, which I talked about earlier this week. It's stupid. Because it's all a bunch of nationalists, one-size-fits-all, claptrap. It's ridiculous. It's not in line with the original Federal Republic. And we need to hold conservatives accountable. And also, if you're on the left, or you have leftist friends, get them to buy onto this too, because it also helps them as well. All right. So... That's it for the Brian McClanahan Show this week. Uh, we had a lot of fun you know, going over the election stuff, and hopefully uh, you, my predictions come true. Uh, and I, I, want to be, I want to be right about this as accurate as I can. But I'll see you next week on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.